You're listening to Clever Women Co., our podcast where we chat about all things business, career, and entrepreneurship with women from all walks of life. I'm Gal Cron, and as always, I'm joined by my business bestie and co-host, M. Kaplan. Hello. On this podcast, we ask the big questions so that we can really delve into the brilliant minds of these incredible women. Listen closely, because every episode is so different and full of insight, you might just walk away with that one tool or piece of advice you needed in order to really take that next step in your journey. It's the conversations you wouldn't find anywhere else, so let's get right into it. Just before we dive into today's chat, if you're loving the podcast and are genuinely getting something out of these conversations, please consider giving it a follow from wherever you're listening and support the show by leaving us a rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we chat to Catherine Wills founder and creative director of luxury bags and accessories brand Sands Beast. After working in very impressive executive roles in Australian fashion retail for nearly 30 years and for huge companies like Jag, Country Road Group, Crumpler and Mimco, Catherine resigned from her final position in 2016 to take a completely new path. With over a decade of her 30-year fashion career spent living and breathing the world of leather handbags, Catherine progressively recognised the huge disconnect between her professional role and her ethical stance on animal welfare and the environment. The new path? Luxe handbags that are completely free of animal products, which she launched by the name of Sands Beast in March of 2018. Catherine is an absolute force in the fashion industry and has so much experience both in the workforce and in forging your own path. We already know you'll get a lot out of this chat, whether you're looking to climb the ranks in your professional career or go out completely on your own. So let's get stuck into it. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both. Nice to be here. I'm excited to see the career journey from the beginning until launching a brand because Mm -hmm. I feel like you have so much valuable insight. You've seen a lot in Australian fashion retail Mm. and I think genuinely our listeners, whether they want to get into fashion or not, will get a lot out of this chat. But we'll get started with a question we love asking guests Mm -hmm. when they come on the show. What are you reading, listening to, and or watching right now? I'm um, I'm reading Peter Singer's Animal Liberation now, which is a re relaunch sort of edit of the first Animal Liberation book that was launched in 1975, which has been pivotal in many people discovering veganism and animal welfare. Um, I'm sort of tapping in and out of Netflix, various bits and pieces, and as far as listening, I listen to a variety of podcasts, anything from Business of Fashion to Tim Ferriss, the Huberman um, Mm. one. Huberman Lab. Lab, thank you. Um, Just on health and being the best you can be. Yeah, various bits and pieces. Smartless for a bit of a laugh sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, I like a mix of business, self-development, and then a bit of fantasy escape. You know, like Mm. there's books that I'll read that are about fairies and, you know, Tolkien-style books, Mm. which just allow me to go into a different world. For years, I was just reading professional books and, you know, how to be a better leader and and, um, seven habits of highly effective people and all that Mm. sort of thing. And, you know, every bit of time I thought I need to make productive, whether I'm going for a walk, certainly during COVID years, if I was going to go for a walk, I needed to be listening to something that was going to further myself or, you know, expand my mind. Um, And when I rediscovered fiction, it was like, oh, God, this is what I've been missing in my brain. I completely agree. another world that I can escape to and rediscover the magic that was part of 
you know, my my life as a as a kid. Like yeah. my inner child is very much um, a being that likes escape mm-hmm. and a fantasy land. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that's a lot of people have those realizations when they start kind of delving into the self help slash self development yeah. realm, where you realize reading is meant to be something that is an enjoyable thing, just for the pure enjoyment of it. Yeah. In in some instances, so it doesn't I, have to be a to do list like tick. Yeah. yeah. I've I've gained a lot from all of those books. Mm. Definitely, I've learned a lot about myself, and I've you know gone to lifestyle retreats like Guingana for many years and you know there's a lot to be said for ruminating on what your journey is and what you can learn and how you impact people and how the world impacts you etc but yeah it's also good just to go to a different plane go to a different universe and just lose yourself in a book it's a lovely thing absolutely well Catherine we'll dive into it Mm -hmm. so we are really interested first to hear a little bit about your upbringing, your yeah. childhood. I think for a lot of people, their upbringings can be quite pivotal in terms of what they go on to do in that later in life. Mm. So could you, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you think it's influenced your working career and who you are now? I mean, I don't know whether you know that sort of until you get later and into life and you reflect on it I'm one of four girls mum piano teacher and was a piano teacher for many many years dad was in the air force but he passed away when I was 19 so I haven't had dad in my life for you know three decades and I think you know being in the air force we moved around a lot so I think in hindsight that obviously gave me a a level of resilience you learn to be the new kid in school you learn to you know adjust and be quite adaptable and sort of just look after yourself I suppose yeah and we lived in upstate New York for a couple of years and I think that was also a very um, important experience particularly as a a pre-teen did a year at junior high and then came back to Australia Um, and that certainly you know changed me in many ways Mm. as far as confidence levels and um, again resilience yeah I just I don't think you sort of know as you're growing up how things are going to impact you in terms of what your future adult and later adult life is going to be you know having three sisters having that you know playing with dress-ups and paper dolls and being inspired by older elder sisters also has an impact losing dad at 19 has an impact on who I am and again my resilience and my resourcefulness and figuring out how to you know, pick yourself up and just get on with life. Yeah, all those things contribute to it. Yeah, and I think you naturally would have been exposed to a lot of different cultures as well. Yeah, I mean, look, we didn't go to many sophisticated places when we were in, when he was in the Air Force. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I was born in Adelaide. It was, yeah, so it was South Australia, it was Canberra, it was eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Upstate New York was probably the most glamorous um, element of it. But even even so again as I say you get used to being the new kid you get used to having to go in introduce yourself you know the um, particularly in America it was quite confronting mm-hmm. it was quite um, intimidating at times so you were 10 when you moved there? yeah yeah and were you the youngest of the four sisters no I'm number three I was wondering do you now speak to your sisters about how that shaped their experience as well or is it kind of yeah yeah no we do we talk about the American experience 
not always in a positive light, sometimes in a positive light. Yeah, it must have been a bit of a culture shock. It was, yeah. So we moved over in 1980. I was 10, my young sister was eight, and then um, the next sister up is uh, four years, and then the next sister up is six years. Uh, is that right? Yeah, roughly so. Um, and that is going to be different for each of those four girls, mm. you know, depending on their age and stage of life. So the teenagers had a very different experience to the tweens. You know, we loved the fact that we were going to get, you know, as many Barbies as we could possibly <laughs> imagine. And we were going to have, um, you know, canopy beds. And, you know, there was a lot of good stuff for myself and the younger sister, my younger sister, Jen. And, you know, good stuff also for my older sisters, but just different. It was just a different experience. Mm. So, yeah, we do talk about it. So, Kath, what would you say is your favourite childhood memory? Uh, well, I had to think about this. Um, <laughs> I was into dancing from a young age. So when we came back from the States, I joined um, dance class. So I think, and we had a, a back deck area uh, and I would practice my tap dancing and my jazz um, in front of the big sort of windows um, and then my, between myself and my mum have to sequin the, um, the leotards so I think the costume the theatrical element of being on stage as well as the dancing is a great childhood memory mm. for sure yeah I don't I mean I don't I, I stopped dance classes obviously decades ago but um, it is such a nice thing to do as a kid um, I started tap dancing again when I was at Country Road many moons ago and it's so different doing it as an adult than a kid. Like, you know, all of the steps you've got to remember mm. when you're also thinking of deadlines and costings <laughs> and the things that you're actually doing yeah. in your day job and it's like step ball change, step shuffle, whatever. Um, but it's such a beautiful thing to have done. Yeah, yeah. another kind of means of escape. Yeah, yeah. And I was such a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers fan. Would you say that introduced you to fashion? Uh, no, I remember specifically... I was about 11 and we were living in the States and I remember just um, becoming interested in how I presented myself and, you know, wanting to go shopping and just, I, I just remember specifically having, determining a style that I, how I wanted to, how I wanted to look. And so then when we came back to Australia, I guess I sort of started to take more of an artistic route in mm. my studies, although I had a pretty diverse study um, approach to high school, which I think when you reflect on the fact that I ended up taking quite a commercial and creative path in my career, that, that sort of all goes together. Like I didn't just go down the arts route. I was, you know, very good at maths, pretty good at English. You know, it was diverse. So, no, I don't, I don't think it was um, the dancing thing and the sequin costumes that necessarily got me into fashion. It was just more of a, um, an awakening and recognising that I, I cared about how I looked and I was interested in how other people looked mm. and how they accessorized and how they um, layered and presented themselves. So at that time you were living in New York, right? So you would Upstate be New York. Upstate it's New York. quite different to New York City. Yeah, yeah it's suburban. Right. Mm. So that there weren't people in crazy outfits there. No, not really. No. But, you know, Australia was quite different in the 70s mm. than it is now. So um, I was born in 1970. We moved to the States in 1980. Australia was still going through its sort of cultural cringe time. Like there wasn't there wasn't a pride in being sophisticated. You sort of people were quite critical of that approach. And so from a style point of view, you know, we all landed in the States. I was you know, we were sort of definitely very much kids in comfortable clothes, you know, went off to school. And I was, particularly when I went to junior high, 
all the girls, and we're talking, you know, 12, 11 and a half, 12, were wearing makeup and much more glamorous. Like I was not glamorous. None of us were really glamorous. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's just a different, um, it was a different time. So we'd love to know about your career journey now prior to Sands Beast. Mm-hmm. We know that you spent just over 10 years working at the Country Road Group and eventually worked your way up to managing and creative director at MIMCO. I think our listeners would love to know kind of what was your journey to climbing from role to role at the Country Road Group mm-hmm. and how did you work your way up? Um, so I was at Country Road early days and then I freelanced for a while. I landed at MIMCO working with the founder of MIMCO and then I became general manager of design working with the founder still and then she sold the business her and her um, business partner and husband at the time uh, sold the business to Witchery Group and then I was working alongside a GM he left the business I took on the commercial operations as well as maintain the creative and then Country Road bought the Witchery Group so I was with Mimco for a total of 12 years the Country Road Group owned the business in the last three years of me being there. So then, Kath, you only went to uni six years after you started working. Yeah. Can you talk us through how you kind of gained experience to be able to get your first role? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when I finished high school, I didn't, um, I didn't have the confidence to go and study fashion design. I didn't have a folio. So I got a job in an office. It was a recruitment office. Uh, And then probably after a year or so, I thought, no, no, fashion is what's calling. So I did what a lot of people do, got a job in retail, worked for Benetton for about 18 months. uh, And that gave me the experience of, you know, customer interaction, visual merchandising, balancing cash in the register, you know, light business aspects that you do when you're managing a store. I was working in the store and then I became manager quite quickly. And then my father died and I was bereft and I was lost and didn't really know what I was going to do. It was simultaneous to Australia starting um, a recession. Uh, So it was a very tough time across the country. I worked in hospitality for a while uh, and then fashion called to me again and I got a job at Palmer Corporation in the fabric department. And as far as how I got that job, I mean, jobs in those days were just in the paper. So Saturday mornings, you'd just be going through the paper. And I found a job and, you know, applied for it, got that. That was like my sort of first entree into true industry. Like retail is one aspect, but head office, seeing the design team, the fabric team, the um, production people, the merch planners, all the rest of it, it's, you know, Um, It was a great experience. And then when I was at Palmer, I realized that I, if I was going to go as far as I wanted to go, I would need to get a degree. Mm -hmm. So I would go home from Palmer slash Jag. I mean, a lot of people don't know Palmer anymore. It's sort of, but they know the Jag brand. Um, And I would just draw and draw, do fashion illustrations um, and do what I thought was the right thing to do for a folio Mm -hmm. and built up a stash of... um, artistic endeavors that I then took to RMIT and applied to get into RMIT. I got in and then I commenced uh, a BA in fashion 1994. I was so focused, you know, I was so focused on doing well and absorbing as much as I could. Um, I mean, I was 24 when I started, but I, 
you know, I, I certainly was termed a mature age student. And in my mind, I was a mature age student. I was just clearer, you know, more clear about what I wanted to achieve out of it. So I did that, 94, 95, 96. I was also married at the time. So I was married at just shy of 22. Ridiculous. And um, so I had a hyphenated name. I was a mature age student. Um, you know, we were paying our, like I didn't, I wasn't living with mum. Obviously dad had died. Um, so financially it was pretty difficult to study full time. Um, so I worked in a consultancy. Some guys that I'd met during the JAG years, they were consulting to various fashion businesses. So I would type up the SWATs mm. and the, the diagnostics. So I, I was exposed to the business sort of analysis that goes um, that's necessary to review a brand. Um, I also did some drawings, some sketch work for them. Um, I just made as much money as I could to pay the rent and stay at at school. And then at the end of uni, I um, I wrote to two businesses and I got a call from CR, which was one of the businesses. And so I went into the knitwear department at Country Road and progressed through the ranks to knitwear design manager after a few years or a couple of years, I suppose. So I guess, you know, in a, you know, progress in a career happens, I think, for a, for a few reasons. Um, one, you've clearly got to work hard and truly work hard, like be willing to put the time in and not do it. I think it's like love. It's got to be unconditional. Like you have to do it with not the, well, you know, I've been done 20 more minutes, so can I take 20 minutes off tomorrow morning? You do it because you make a choice that... I want to do as good a job as I can possibly do. Timing, a little bit of luck, right time, right place, certainly comes into it. And then obviously you've got to have people around you that recognise that you're valuable, like you have to represent value to a business. And generally, unless you're working with idiots, generally someone will recognise that you're not irreplaceable, we're all, we're, we are all replaceable, but you are bringing enough value and you're making decisions that no one else seems to want to make and you'll hold the weight of that more senior role. You know, I've, I've had a lot of, I've obviously recruited a lot of people over the years and hired a lot of people and it is a common mistake that people that want the next step, they want the pay rise, they certainly want the title, but they're not at that next level mm. you know that whole cliche of you know dress for the job that you want or it's sort of also act in the job that you want and it's then it's really easy like you progress really easily because frankly there's not that many people that actually want to put the effort in you know it's just it's just it's a competitive world that's such great insight yeah that's I have so many questions so <laughs> I think there's been such a push against the hustle culture. Mm. So every every bit of um, anything that even intimates workaholism is seen as a bad thing. And I get that. Like, I mean, I, I got quite burnt out, certainly when I took on the commercial side of things. My learning curve, you know, went like this. I had to learn so much. And I was fortunate to have a few people around me that were generous with advice but it's not like they sat holding my hand until mm. I, you know, learnt it. I was given tidbits of information. I was given access to them. But then I had to, you know, do the homework, go and figure things out myself. So, yeah, burnout is not good. It's not attractive and it's not advisable. But I also think learning how to keep oneself healthy through sleep and diet and movement is a way to still work bloody hard, but to keep burnout at bay. Just going backwards a bit yes when 
you went straight to work after high school. What were your friends doing? Were they able to relate to that? Were you, Good were, question. Was there competition between um, you guys? A lot of people were going into work. I mean, I went to, I didn't go to a private school. It was Wonturner High. I think it's called Wonturner College now. Um, Rebrand. Um, you know, it. there were people that went to uni and there were people that went straight to work. I would say it wasn't, um, no one in my cohort had um, that pressure that had to be like, you need to sign up to go to uni. A lot of people went into arts degrees and there was a lot of drinking and, you know, sort of messing around I felt I guess I felt that dad dying at 19 it just changed my trajectory in some ways I was pretty focused on not living at home being able to pay my rent and all those adult things that I had to do yeah so no I don't think there was yeah it wasn't competition amongst my friends and also you know friendships also changed from high school going into your 20s as well definitely yeah you also got married quite young. I know, madness. And look, my ex-husband is a dear friend of mine. We have we've gone through the ups and downs over the years, but we um, um, we're great friends. He's good friends with my partner. He's uh, married to a beautiful woman. They've got two daughters. Like it's, you know, it's all in the past. But I think it was um, we it was a rash decision mm. in some ways. You know, losing a parent at that age it put me in a mental state of insecurity and um, I was in love and I was, um, it just seemed like the most important love in the world and, um, you know, my first love. And there was other, you know, people were certainly giving me advice about being rational and, you know, going out into the world and experiencing the world. And I was so, you know, um, I thought I was quite mature and I was quite articulate and I was, you know, I've got this, I know what I'm doing. So, you know, I had the Elizabethan puffball bloody sleeve wedding dress and my ring. I had long hair then and ringlets. Wow. and Yes. Um, yeah, and we, we, we stayed together till I was 28. Okay. Yeah, and then went to London and, well, broke up and then I went to London. Did that in any way impact your working life at the time or when you started it getting did. into work? It did. The breakup, you mean, or moving to London? Both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was with Country Road at the time and, um, you know, it was another death, so to speak. It was another sort of challenging time in my life. Um, but I am so grateful that I got to have the experience in London for nearly a year. Um, I didn't work in fashion over there. I just temped. Again, just needed to make money to be able to pay the rent. Um, and temping was better money than fashion. What's temping? Sorry? Oh, a temp- temporary person. Oh, okay. Um, I- go in and be a PA or a receptionist, right. a generally PA work I was doing. You know, getting coffee for white men that can't make their own coffee, that sort of thing. Yeah, and my typing speed stood me in good stead. So timeline-wise, again, you had the London chapter and you come back to Australia. What do you do now? Uh, I went back to Country Road. I worked at Country Road for a few years when I got back. Great progression at that time. And then I left CR, started freelancing for a while, and that's when I landed at Mimco, working with the founder, etc., etc. And then eventually left Mimco, middle of 2016. So, your decision to leave Mimco, mm. what what prompted that? Many things. Um, certainly, it is. Um, it's often framed as a nice little soundbite that I went vegan and I had this sort of burst of. Um, this epiphany and it was like, right, I'm leaving and I go in a blaze, blaze mm. of glory type thing. And it's not like that. 
I'd been there for 12 years, two of which were freelancing, 10 as a permanent person. The intensity of uh, certainly even the creative directorship, let alone the managing and the creative director combined role, uh, was intense. I think it's like dog years, really, because one year feels like three. I don't even know what the metric is for dog years. It's intense. Seven. Seven, yeah, okay, maybe not that much. Um, So it's an intense time. And I felt by the time I got to 2015 that it was starting to feel like Groundhog Day. I'd written so many narratives for creative direction. I'd written strategies. I'd nurtured both sides of my brain. I'd run towards, you know, exhaustion on many occasions. And I was, it was, I'd already gone vegetarian. I'd watched Cowspiracy and that had woken me up to what was going on environmentally when it came to the meat industry in particular. Um, But then I was exploring the ethics of it as well and just progressively things weren't sitting well with me. So it was a combination of recognising that I needed a new chapter. I felt that Mimco was heading towards needing fresh blood as well. And it just all culminated. Towards the end of 2015, I'd made a decision that I was going to leave or certainly give my notice at the beginning of 16. Uh, it was when the brand was turning 20 and I thought that's perfect. It's a nice bookend to my mm. chapter here. We'll have a great celebration for turning 20. There was a lot to celebrate. You know, it was um, it was a great chapter in my life and I'm grateful that I had certainly the beginning of my time there with the founder but also with some other creatives that she had hired that were just brilliant. So I'm, I'm grateful for that time. But certainly as I woke up to where leather is coming from and how those animals are being treated. I'm not thrilled that I spent so much time working in that space. Um, so it's it's one of those contradictions in one's mind mm-hmm. as to the great experience you have professionally and how much you learn and how much you evolve and gain from that experience. And, you know, I, I couldn't have started my business and funded it, bootstrapped it, which is what we continue to do, unless I'd had an executive level role. It didn't enter into my mind when I was at Mimco. I Mm. gave all of my brain cells to that business. It certainly entered into my mind when I left halfway through 2016. uh, And I started traveling as a bit of a decompression time. And I wasn't great at decompressing. So I started thinking, what am I going to do next? And that's when the name came to me. Um, But then I shelved the name, went traveling, and had a bit of you know um, downtime and then I started consulting when I came back from travels and then the name percolated again in my mind and I thought this is exactly what I'm going to do. Also just what I've learned uh, to be better at is not forcing an idea even though you might have a, a little idea percolating not forcing it to become a fully fledged idea like it just Sometimes you just need to put it into a different filing cabinet in your mind and go off and travel or go and exercise or just do something that is not focused on bringing that idea to fruition. And I was forcing it when I first left. And it's no surprise that it took a year or so until I established the name, as in trademarked the name and did the branding and all the rest of it. It takes time. Yeah. Well, speaking of the name, yes, the name of your brand is quite interesting and we know that it does have deeper meaning. So can you talk us through, I guess, how the idea came about mm. and also the meaning behind yeah. your brand? So it means um, son or sans. Obviously, in Australia, we say sans. Um, <laughs> means without in French and beast is obviously animal. So without animal is the simple meaning for the brand name. And I did come up with the name 
weeks after leaving Mimco, I went to Bali with my partner, John, and I was thinking about what I could do. You know, maybe I should start a business. Um, and at that stage, I was really thinking it could be a business, but I could become an employee again. Maybe I'll go and convince a board to do just vegan goods, not animal goods. And I thought, what do you, you know, I was just confused. Like I was all over the shop, but what I wasn't all over the shop about was the fact that I was vegetarian and well on my way to going vegan or plant-based in my diet and so I just started brainstorming words you know no animal without animal yeah and the name zombies just came up and initially I thought oh goodness that's too emotional a brand name it's too I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve I'm really saying I'm vegan and at the time that didn't sit well with me I was uncomfortable with that I didn't have the courage Uh, so as I said I shelved the idea until I traveled and consulted for a while and then I went back to it And I could not imagine the brand name being anything else now. Mm. Um, And I couldn't imagine not being proud of the fact that I'm plant-based and that I speak up for animal welfare, irrespective of whether it makes people feel uncomfortable or not. Was it a complicated process coming up with vegan leather or, you know, non-animal products for your... Because you had so much experience, obviously, with the opposite of that. Yeah, not really. I mean, there's a fair in Hong Kong, APLF. Um, It's a leather fair, but there's also a non-leather area. You know, synthetics have come a long way over the years. uh, And I was looking for, a at the time, a a synthetic that um, had a good hand feel, that I had a target price in my head that hit the international, the European reach standards, standards, which is a chemical standard, so i.e. I, I, not being um, nasty and toxic. But then once you sort of come up with those parameters that you're looking for, okay, there wasn't like lots of them at the fair, but I found a couple of suppliers, nurtured a relationship with them and, you know, got some sampling happening started designing, prototyping, etc. And then, you know, that was back in 2017 that I went to APLF to find the materials. A lot has changed since then. You know, all of the synthetics now have got a recycled base and partially recycled surface. Uh, we're also using more bio-based materials. There's a lot more development happening in the... I mean, I don't really use the term vegan leather, but it's a great term for people searching when they mm. want something that's not animal-derived. There's, there's so much happening be it for ethical, environmental, or simply commercial opportunity, there's entities that are developing materials that are taking on the leather industry, uh, which is very different to what it was six years ago. So who creates the designs of your bags? Is it, do you have still quite a lot of oversight of? Oh, a huge amount of oversight. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the design process is multifaceted. It's not as simple as just you know, you draw a bag and the bag comes to life. I have a very clear view as to what I think is required in the range. Um, Certainly in the early days I was doing sketching. Now I'll still do rough sketches, but I've hired designers, freelancers, different people coming into the business over the years. So it's it's a combined effort very much. So there's initial sketches, there's text sketches, and then there's all the annotated drawings that have to go off to the factory. There is then the liaison with the factory, the fitting, the wear testing, the internals, the externals. There's a lot that goes into it. Your brand is in stores like, such as David Jones and uh-huh. it's positioned against, you know, some pretty well-known brands that are leather and the prices stand quite comparably. Yeah. Yep. How do you get people to purchase your bag over someone who is selling yep. a leather product yep. that, I don't know, leather sometimes is assumed to be a little bit more durable or yep. like longer lasting and how do you, yeah, how do you position yourself amongst those brands that... Yeah have the similar prices but are leather goods yeah 
there's a lot that happens. I guess it depends on how you're going to term um, what is cheap and what is expensive. In my mind, a leather product that has come from an animal that hasn't been treated well, that has got scratch and bite and whip marks on it, that has then been tanned, mm. possibly, quite likely, in a country that doesn't have super tight regulations on where the water goes, how those tannery workers are treated, copious amounts of chemicals, then sprayed, generally with a polyurethane coating, i.e. plastic, to get the colour and to cover all those scratch, bite and whip marks. That then goes into a product, so it's damaged the environment, it's damaged the human, it's damaged the animal, but all we're focused on is it's $199 versus a material that was made in a factory and granted from synthetic, albeit recycled synthetic, um, that's being made in, a, the bag's being made in a factory where people are being paid living wages. We, we'd make small amounts of units. We don't have negotiation capacity. We can't say, right, we're making a thousand, so we want $10 off every bag. You know, I've come from bigger business. I know what mm -hmm. negotiation looks like, and I know what you can do when you're only buying 100, 200 units of things. You can't do very much. So I know how much the material costs. I know how much the labor costs to make the patterns, make all the details. Like there's a lot of hardware on our bags. There's a lot of internal pockets, external pockets. We don't put a margin that is greedy on our bags. It's, it's a standard margin when it comes to fashion accessories. In fact, it's a bit on the low side. Um, because I want to price the goods what I think they should be priced at in the marketplace and then hopefully we can build margin and build a more um, a, a more robust business as time goes on. There's a lot of leather that is very cheap. I mean, people, leather is just not one generic um, material, just like faux leather is not one generic material. You can get really shitty PVCs and you can get really beautiful Italian PU-coated materials. I mean, what do you think Stella McCartney's using? Like, you know, it's there's good and there's bad yeah. when it comes mm -hmm. to quality. So there's the quality of the materials, there's how much you're paying for labour, there's how much hardware is going on the product, and there's how much negotiation you can do. Um, and then there's the business model of the brand and what their margin structure is as well. There's so much... The supply chain in fashion is quite, you know diverse mm. and when you bring animals into that like you know I've cuddled your dog on the way in like you know they're no different to a cow or a pig mm. yet they're put into tight environments mm. fed antibiotics not allowed to display their natural inclinations and then we slaughter them and then we call that a premium material it's it's horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if more people knew, I mean, Paul McCartney famously said, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, more people would be vegetarian. There's mm -hmm. a lot that is kept from consumers. I mean, I genuinely don't think most people, the majority of people do not consider themselves as being people that want to harm animals. They don't. Most people think, oh my goodness, I could never do that. No, you know, that's, that's not me. But, you know, supermarkets wrap up pieces of flesh in plastic and it's like there's no connection to the farm yeah, or and, the being. And with what your product is and going into a, a store and purchasing a handbag, just, there's such a disconnect between the end product and the whole, exactly. Pro the whole process. Exactly. So how do we get people to buy? I guess, you know, the brand is established and was, was envisaged as being a brand that makes really great looking cool handbags that happen, happen to be vegan. And I would say at least half, if not more, I don't know, we haven't really measured it recently, of our customers don't identify as vegan slash plant, 
based. They just like the look mm. of the product. Most of the time, it's because of the aesthetics. Yeah. They like the look of it. They think it's a cool brand. I think one thing that really makes your brand stand out is that you're androgynous. So you're catering to all genders. How does that come about? What What was the decision process behind that? Because I think that's not common in the bag industry, which is obviously a lot more catered to, to women. women. Well... I mean, if you've been dancing and swimming in the bling of Mimco for as long as I was, you come out the other side, and I loved that time in my life, but you come out the other side, you know, I was, I, you know, you're a bit more mature, you're older, I'm, I was more drawn to androgyny from a styling perspective, um, and I wanted the brand to be for all, like I wanted it to be a brand that appealed to everyone. And the Upside Down A, which has got some history as far as the where the, the logo came from, but the Upside Down A in mathematics means for all. Wow. I know. And that wow. was after the logo had been designed. So it was like, that Meant is such be. a beautiful learning to know that. I will say it is mostly women that shop with us. Sure. Um, but more and more men are definitely coming to us as well. Yeah. Yeah. And there's more potential for us to expand that in the collection. Mm. Your brand is also PETA certified. It is. Just for our listeners and for us, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. Look, there is a lot of, there's there's trust that is involved to become PETA certified and there's a cost involved as well. Now, you can't just pay and they give you the tick. I mean, it's not like, um, yeah, it's not like purely leather-based business can become PETA certified. But we have to give an assurance um, on a legal document that we don't use any animal products from the materials to the glues. And then we also have to get all of our factories to agree to that as well. And then there's a little bit more certification. But it is it is trust, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's going in there and, you know, looking at the material and saying this is actually recycled leather. So they, I guess there's an understanding that those of us that seek PETA certification are on board with the ethos and the, the ethics of PETA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think sometimes there can be a lot of greenwashing when it comes to the word sustainability totally Um, i don't use the word in your brand at all no i haven't seen it anywhere. no we don't use it no as i said earlier there's a lot of stuff happening in the world with the climate crisis who really knows what is actually going to be sustainable long term obviously you know fossil fuels bit of a problem they're a they're a finite resource you know plastic is a byproduct of that industry but there's a lot of plastic on the planet and we have to recycle it if we're going to do anything wise with it so i think sustainability for brands that are we don't do a lot of new product we you know maybe three to six new styles a season but we are doing new collections every six months it's not high volume product But if we're going to be a business that will allow me to keep employing people and growing and Mm. getting our message out there, it has to scale. Mm. And that means more product being made. So I I do and have wondered from the beginning how viable that word sustainability is. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it is. It has allowed many businesses that are churning out a lot of product to do a couple of key initiatives and have them as their banner messaging and say we're sustainable. Yeah, I mean it's hard. You you can't really do do it all. No, I think it, buying less, looking after your things, is a really important way to tread lighter on mm. the planet for sure. Well, with all of this in mind, Kath, I'm interested to hear what 
is the biggest challenge that you're facing at the moment with your business? The market is definitely tough right now for retail. Um, I think we're doing okay, given, you know, people are struggling with mortgage repayments and the rent market is tough. So look, I think it's always going to be a bit of a, you know, month by month view as to how trade is going, uh, because keeping the lights on, paying people, buying more stock, you know, all those things cost. But that's just part of having a business. I would Mm -hmm. say the bigger thing that I spend energy on is keeping myself optimistic, keeping myself, you know, talking to people that other founders that understand the journey. It is a lonely journey. Mm. And I've got a great partner in John and I've got a, you know, a small but great team, but no one can really understand the creative energy, the financial energy, the, Mm. um, you know, the worries that go along with all of that. It, It sort of is part of the gig though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back to you. In the last sort of five years, what new belief or behavior do you think most improved your life or change that you've made? Well, I was already vegan five years ago, so I can't say plant-based, but I will do a little rah-rah for plant-based eating. I do think it is brilliant for your body, for your mind and for your soul from an ethical point of view. Um, Meditation. I started doing meditation probably just prior to COVID and that's been a game changer for me and I also do like the first minute of my shower freezing cold and we have an outdoor shower so 12 months of the year that's my start to the day and that's when I just do um I'd also do like my gratitude outs you know actually speak it out hopefully Mm -hmm. no one's walking past our fence (laughs) when they hear me I do it quite quietly yeah I've definitely embraced and I know it's seen as such a cliche and you know hashtag grateful and blessed and all the rest of it but um, I think for me it's really important the cold is really important from us on a cellular level and truly reminding myself of all the things that I've got to be grateful for in conjunction with the meditation have been um, a gift for me for Clich- sure cliches exist for a reason i know i know i think i'm supposed to do the cold at the end of the shower but i do it at the beginning to wake myself up i do think i don't know whether you've both read um james clear's atomic habits yeah yeah i mean i do think that whole micro habit um habit stacking mentality is important mm. like this whole i think i used to believe drastic change was the key and when i look at what i've implemented be it the cold shower or the meditation or, you know, F45, which I've done for nearly a year now, you know, they're actually just little things that I've committed to and said, I'm going to do this regularly. Um, And I've got plenty of things that I don't do well, for sure. But I know that I've stepped forward in some of those um, more positive um, aspects of how to treat my body and thus my mind. Kath, if you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Probably courage. Probably um, having courage of my convictions, um, not being afraid to speak up when I think something's wrong, um, not being afraid to advocate when everyone is disagreeing with me. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I, I've, I've always, I strive to be cor- courageous in my, um, in the steps that I take in business, in life, in conversations. And I guess it doesn't always make you popular. But if you go back to one of your first questions about, you know, progressing through my career, the leader or the boss doesn't always get to be the popular one. In fact, they are often not the popular one. So I would tie it back to that, like to be courageous sort of means standing on your own. So to end off, Kath, if our listeners would like to find either yourself or your brand online, 
where can they find you? So sans.beast on Instagram, sansbeast.com on the website. Uh, I think it's just sansbeast on Meta. Um, I'm underscore Catherine Wills on Insta for my personal. And then I think I'm just Catherine Wills at LinkedIn. There's a few there. Well, Kath, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today. I think you've left us and our listeners with so much valuable insight into, yeah, I guess the ethics behind the fashion industry and how you've kind of explored that through your brand, Sans Beast. As always, if you'd like to visually see this episode, be sure to jump on our socials at Clever Women Co, where you can see us chatting to the wonderful Kath. And please don't forget to support our show. It really helps kind of push us up on the algorithm and get the word out about speaking to women like Kath who have an incredible story behind their brand. Yeah. But otherwise, we'll catch you in our next episode. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Clever Media production. Clever Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. We pay our deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Like this episode? Let us know about it. And don't worry, we have plenty more. So hit that subscribe button and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But want to take it that little bit further from your ears to your eyes? Then go find us as Clever Women Co. on TikTok and Instagram for that extra clever content we know you'll love. Catch you next time.